be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. In 1986, a woman named Mary Beth Tinning was arrested for a crime so horrible it sent shockwaves through her community. But what's even worse, her horrendous acts spanned back for over a decade and will leave you questioning, how can someone be so evil? I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. That's criminal as fuck. That shit is criminal as fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> What's good, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How we doing, everybody? Uh, we'd like to give a shout-out and a welcome to, I hope I get your name right, Chantal Seislick. To the criminal family. You're the best. Thank you so much. You can become a criminal on Patreon by donating as little as $2 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash criminal AF or click on the link in the show notes. Dude, our, our community's growing. I I'm telling you, man. love it, dude. I know. I fucking love it. Fucking great. So, hey, did you know that I was a DJ now? You're DJing now. Yeah. DJ. DJ Jar Jar in the I house. I can see that, wicked, though. Wicked, 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 wicked. <laughs> I could totally see that, though. Yeah. You do got a good taste in music. <laughs> you got the, you know, you got the DJ voice. You could definitely do it. Yeah. I could see it. No, not, not really a DJ. But my son, <laughs> my son's best friend Bradley got married and had a small reception with family and close friends and asked if I'd like to DJ. So I'm thinking to myself, why would he automatically think that I would be a DJ? Oh yeah, right. you know. I think anybody listening understands why you could be a DJ. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's probably because we have the podcast and we have some of the equipment, whatever. So I've never DJed before, so it was quite quite the experience. You know, it's kind of nerve-wracking because, you, you know, it's a wedding, so you got to be on point, you know, on time with all the songs yeah. and, and everything like that. But I think I did pretty well for a rookie, you know. I could, yeah, I could definitely see you up there, like, yeah. you know, calling everybody up. And, like, <laughs> that's that's fantastic. <laughs> Playing games. All the ladies in the house. <laughs> but, you know, I, I had the I had the people up, up and dancing, so, you know, getting crunk, I guess, was the the kids call it nowadays getting crunk you haven't said getting crunk since 2010 <laughs> what do you mean the kids nowadays I don't say the reason I said that is because somebody came up to me and they're like because we were playing like the dinner music and all the you know the usual you know whatever and one of the kids came up to me they had to be at least in their 20s and they were like yo we're gonna get crunk or what and I'm like uh, okay. <laughs> Dude, that's so lit, man. Yeah. You gotta, you, you gotta play this shit, man. Cheese. <laughs> Cheese. That's fucking hilarious. Uh, well, I'm but, glad you had fun. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think some of the grandparents enjoyed my music selection. Oh, screw them. But at least the 20-somethings. Can thing. you play that Brad Paisley song? I love that. What is that rap? Turn that off. Yeah. Why is the music so loud? <laughs> Shut up. It's a wedding. I know. <laughs> have fun. Yeah. So that was that, that's what I've been doing. What's up with you? Nothing, dude. I'm jonesing. Jonesing? Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to quit. You know, I mean, I've talked to you about it. I'm trying to quit vaping. Right. Smoked forever, and then yeah. I switched to vapes, and now I can't get off of it. Now yeah. I'm on goddamn... Nicotine sticks. Nicotine toothpicks, and they're working good. I yeah. highly suggest them for you guys, but the problem with it is yeah. it feels too much like dip for me. Really? And I have, like, nightmares of dip I can't I can't do it like, I'm not I'm not even joking I can I smell dip spit when people are like when it's you know we yeah. talk to people work, uh, dip at work and if there's a cup around I get like nauseous like, I start mm-hmm. getting goosebumps uh, baseball back in the day 
I my whole team used to dip because we thought we were cool. Yeah. Because you know, that's what I you mean, did. I think every athlete in high school at one point or another has yeah. dipped. Yeah. And uh, we had a community Gatorade bottle, the big, the big one. Oh, I see what this is going. I had a grape Gatorade that day. <laughs> And everybody, like five, six people were spitting into this fucking grape Gatorade bottle. <laughs> and it was fucking 95 degrees. I was dying. Yeah. We were, we, we, I don't even remember. It was, it was a game. It was practice. And we were like just running. Yeah. And I came back into the dugout and I was just like, where's my Gatorade? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I went, gulp, gulp. I got like three big gulps in before oh, I realized before, what it was. Before it registered yep. in the brain? I puked for three days straight. Oh. Because every time I thought about it, yep. it'd make me throw up. Yeah. And, and I instantly stopped dipping. Ne- never tried it again. Really? I can't even go near the smell. I just I'm traumatized. Oh. So I, that that actually happened to me at like a party one time. Oh, I, uh, I'm drinking know, cigarette ash before. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> you know, I sit around playing playing cards. People are dipping into an empty beer bottle, <laughs> and you just drink. You know, grab the nearest bottle next to you. Oh, dude, I, I'm literally getting queasy just thinking yeah. about it right now. Oh, this is the worst. Oh. But I have a story. It kind of reminds. I never. I, I think I put this in the back of my head, but I actually have a story, kind of going along with that. When I was younger. Like seventh, eighth grade, me and my friends, you know, we'd all get together and we'd go out, you know, hiking through the woods or whatever. And it was winter, so we we all got together and we're like, oh, you know, let's let's go through the woods. We'll go down to the lake and you know, chill out, whatever. Now, for some reason, smoke some weed. You smoke, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in eighth grade, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> really? Coke in eighth grade. No. <laughs> I was definitely smoking weed in eighth grade, <laughs> but I was also a delinquent back then. So. <laughs> so, for some reason, we were like, all right, you know, let's all leave our drinks in the snow to keep them cold while we're off doing, you know, whatever freaking kids do back then. Yeah. So, we're going for maybe like a half hour, hour, whatever. We come back, and, and when we came back, my friend's brothers, who were older, were hanging out where we had put our drinks, yep. you know, with, with their friends. Yeah. They're like five, ten years old, you know, five years old or whatever. Yeah. And so we come back, and first thing I do is I come back and I grab my soda. I had a Mountain Dew. Grabbed it out of, out of the fucking <laughs> oh, snow. Oh, no, I already know where this is going. <laughs> I grabbed it out of the snow, you know. Oh, that ice and cold I'm, Mountain Dew, baby. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> oh, I, just, I love some Mountain Dew. Right? So I fucking crack it open, and I take the biggest fucking swig. Gulp. Gulp. And as soon as the fucking bottle hit my lips, all the all of his old his brothers and friends just like... Diet. Busting out laughing, I'm like gloop, and I'm like, oh, oh. dude, I, I, I'm pretty sure you can figure out by now what I drank. Uh. One of his brothers pissed in my fucking Mountain Dew bottle, so yeah. Never drank piss, buddy. Yeah, well. I drank five dudes spit, but not piss. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds even worse. Oh man! All right, uh. so let's get into the business end of this podcast. This is just a reminder that this is a true crime podcast. There will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. Like fuck? Like fuck. <laughs> wow. We're getting this down. You know, this is like you know, yes. starting to come together. Yes. All right, we understand that Criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the, the debauchery. debauchery. Speaking of debauchery, David. <laughs> yes. You know, last last episode we talked about 
pastor only there, fans. A uh, holer, a holy yeah. man, right? <laughs> Five hell marys and a, <laughs> jerk it off a little bit. Yeah, okay. a holy man. Right? Yes. Yes, a man of God. We're an equal opportunity podcast, and we, you know, we we're gonna we're gonna pivot right now. And if, if okay. a guy can masturbate at a Starbucks, yeah, a woman can masturbate at a state park, dude. Get the hell out. <laughs> Headline is <laughs> Wildwood Wildwood woman enters plea but remains jailed after found masturbating at park. <laughs> we'll include the mugshot too. Oh gosh, yeah, go on, uh, go on IG. Yeah. We're gonna post all the pictures. Later. A wild woman, woman uh, a Wildwood woman pleaded not guilty last week to a charge she was in possession of cocaine when she was found masturbating in a car at Martin Luther King Jr. Park in Wildwood. Jessica Devon Seward, 39, of Wildwood, remains held without bond at the Sumter County Detention Center following her arrest on July 27th by the Wildwood Police. That's a great police. Yeah. I'm part of Wildwood. Well, my question is, was she watching the uh, the sermon? <laughs> you know? She was, on, she was a subscriber. Yeah, yeah. she was on... You can't she, blame her. She's on Pastor OnlyFans, and she's just, you know, doing yeah. her... Uh... Can I get an amen? <laughs> she, was, she was being held without bond due to probation violation from a fire arrest. Seward was in a silver Nissan Altima when an officer observed Seward as she was masturbating. Seward told the officer she was just touching herself, minding her own business. Yeah. Wait, there, you can't sit there and flick yourself, no, you know? There was, uh, there was a car with three teenage par- uh, teenagers parked nearby and what, that watched and called the police. So, I mean... Three teenagers? Yeah. I wouldn't have called the police. I would have been like, yeah, look at this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, where's my phone? Go right on freaking. Could you, honestly though, could you imagine, like, you expect it from, like, I mean, as crazy as it is, like, yeah. a dude, like, you know, guys are fucking gross. Like, they, they oh, yeah, just, run around streaker, streakers. They, they like the shocking value of that, right? right? Yeah. But just watching a woman flick her bean in the park <laughs> is the, just playing the fucking violin at the park is wild to me. I'm like, yo! Well, maybe she heard our podcast. It was playing. It was playing an intro to the fucking Florida Man segment. We're, ding, ding, ding. Well, I'm gonna get on the Criminal AF. Well, baby Jessica, you're on. There you go. Welcome to the wall. <laughs> Welcome to the debauchery. <laughs> All right. All right. To settle in for this episode, we are going to be discussing Mary Beth Tinning. And if you've heard of her before, it's because she is known as the Manchowsen. Manchowsen? Man, Manchowsen? Manchowsen. 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 It's got to be Manchowsen. Because it can't be Munch. Munchowsen. 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 Pronounce it on Google. That'll tell you faster than we can figure it out. You don't want to get it wrong. Pronounce Munchowsen. Munchowsen. Munchowsen? Munchowsen. No, it says Moonchausen. Moonchausen. Do it slow. Moonchausen. Hmm. Okay. Moonchausen. All right. So she's known as the Moonchausen murderer, and she is responsible for creating death and despair in her wake. And we'll go ahead and get into chapter one. Hunter and gatherer societies date back nearly two million years. From Homo erectus, to Neanderthals, to Homo sapiens, the hunter-gatherer way of life was the only way to survive. In fact, there are still societies around the world who still live this way. In a hunter-gatherer society, the means and how food is collected is predominantly based on your gender. 
Males are the hunters and women are the gatherers. It wasn't until about 50,000 years ago that humans began to transition to an agricultural society where rather than traveling hundreds of miles to find your food source, fruits, vegetables, and meat were now being cultivated in villages. I know what you must be thinking. Dave, what the hell does this have to do with serial killers? Bear with me, it will. According to Marissa Harrison, evolutionary psychologist and associate professor of psychology at Penn State Harrisburg, we have spent 95% of our existence on this earth as hunters and gatherers. Even though we no longer migrate with the seasons to find our food, Harrison believes we may still be genetically predisposed to act as hunters and gatherers in other ways. Which brings us to the topic of serial killers. Are you ready? Male serial killers are hunters whose victims are six times more likely to be strangers. Males see their prey. They stalk, lurk in shadows waiting for the right time to strike. Women serial killers, on the other hand, tend to be gatherers. They are more likely to kill people that are close to them. They work for, befriend, and marry their victims. They usually kill for social, emotional, or financial gain. But there is one more thing that women serial killers are more apt to do over their male counterparts. And that is, they kill their own children. One woman in the state of New York had the medical community thinking they had discovered a new death gene. But to her family and friends, they were thinking something a lot more sinister. From 1971 to 1985, eight biological children and one adopted child raised by this woman never reached the age of five. Her name, Mary Beth Tinning. Born Mary Beth Rowe on September 11, 1942, to Alton and Ruth Rowe in Duanesburg, a small town just outside of Schenectady, New York. She didn't start her life in the same fashion as other notable serial killers. There was no animal cruelty, no bedwetting, and no arson. What she did experience, though, was a childhood full of rejection and abuse. Mary Beth's parents would lock her in a closet when Alton was sick of looking at her, and he was known to smack her with a fly swatter. No reason other than the fact that Mary Beth was just passing by. She had hoped for some sort of reprieve when her brother was born, but Mary Beth's feelings of rejection would only escalate, and not just from inside her own home. Her aunt would take every opportunity to tell Mary Beth that she was unwanted, and that she was an accident, as her parents had no intention of having her. Mary Beth was isolated from the outside world, and had difficulty developing friendships in school, as she was labeled as an outcast and strange by her classmates. Mary Beth stayed to herself throughout high school, with one exception. She served as president of the future homemakers of America, as she dreamed of one day finding love and becoming a wife and mother. After high school, Mary Beth aspired to attend the university, but those plans fell short. She instead worked at a series of menial jobs over the course of a few years, until she landed a job as a nurse's aide at Ellis Hospital in Schenectady. This is when Mary Beth met Joe Tenning in 1963. They met on a blind date, orchestrated by mutual friends, and finally, for Mary Beth, she felt as if her dream of having her own family was within reach. Joe was a shy, quiet man with a friendly disposition. While their courtship would never make it into a romance novel, Mary Beth and Joe got along rather well with each other, and in 1965, they were married. Mary Beth's plans of having children took a couple of years to come to fruition, but on May 31, 1967, Barbara was born. 
and they welcomed baby Joseph to their growing family on January 10, 1970. Both Barbara and Joseph were happy, healthy babies, and the Tinnings were living the American dream. That is, until tragedy strikes in October of 1971, and from that moment on, life for the Tinnings would never be the same. So, uh, what are your thoughts on Marissa Harrison's study and the comparison of hunter-gatherers uh, compared to male and female serial killers? It's interesting because as much as females are just out in the workforce, they're doing, they're doing, they're accomplishing so much, even more than men up to this point. You could argue on some, you know, different. Women run the world. I'll tell you that. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Whether some some men will tell you, no, that's not true, but we know it's true. And uh, it's interesting because there is a portion in there where you can't take out thousands of years of evolution. You know, like so I can see there's it's their it's not their whole life, but there there is definitely gatherer like tendencies in you know mo- all, mostly all females yeah because you know as we as we talked about you know men male serial killers have that uh hunting aspect to it yeah very Frank, rarely stock right very rarely are they uh do they know their victims yep. you know they hide in the bushes they you know hide in, in the dark alleys and, and whatnot whereas women you know they they you they tend to kill people close to them yep. you know i mean Eileen's having sex with these dudes before she kills them. <laughs> well, yeah. well I, Eileen's a little different. <laughs> no, I'm <messing> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Eileen's like, you know, bro, you only gave me like fucking two and a half minutes? Yeah. The fuck? Bop, 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 bop. <laughs> you fucking pig. You pig man. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Like, I don't want no two minute man. 50% of all female serial killers yeah. murder their own children. Wild stat. 15%, yeah. yeah but that's evolutionary. I mean, emphasize a very thi- uh, serious thing, even though mostly the male, you know, male, male lions, male dolphins, those things happen. But yeah. sometimes mom, I mean, moms kill their own babies in, in the wild. So I, it's you're, it's so true that, you know, we're still mammals at heart. We still came from wherever we came for, whatever you believe in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's it, evolutionary. It's, yeah. yeah. There's traits in your brain that your wires get crossed. Which, yeah. You go back to a primal state. Uh, yeah. And then on top of that. 15% of all serial killers are women. That that number stood out to me. I thought it would have been lower. Lower than 15%? Yeah, I thought it would have been lower than all serial killers. Like, I mean, maybe the men got a little bit more glory and a little bit well, like stories and put out there, but you here, don't... Here's a stat that I, that I read a while ago. I don't know the exact number, so I'm not going to really, you know, quote too much into it. Even though there's less women serial killers, yep. they have the highest body count. They're just better, you know. Like you said, well, yeah. that, like you said in that, they're just better at it. You know, because because there's our, our primal rage takes over, and we like, yeah. you know what I mean. We get they're more calculated with their right. They're calculated. Yeah. They're more subtle. They're yep. more you know discreet with it. We're just like we're let's go rip a girl off the side of the street and hope nobody sees. <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. We're stupid. We're Dudes dumb. Are like I'm gonna chop her head <laughs> off and fucking walk around with it. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep it in my lunchbox and go to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy, keep it at home. <laughs> God, men are so stupid. <laughs> Fucking stupid. Uh, All of them got caught over some dumb shit. I know. Uh. Yeah. All right, so going into a little bit about Mary Beth, you know, from the ages of 6 to 23, uh, she had feelings of mistreatment by her parents. She spent most of her childhood alone and claimed her parents would lock her in a room at times for up to a day. She alleged that her father used to hit her with a fly swatter just because she was in his presence. You know, like she would just walk through the living room or whatever, and he'd be like, get the fuck away from me. You know? uh, her aunt used to tell her repeatedly that she was unplanned and unwanted. Oof. Yeah, so 
That's it's a little tough to swallow. So I looked into children who develop without having the attention they crave from non-caring parents and how this translates into Munchausen. Uh, it says that while there isn't a known reason why people develop this condition, they can attribute it to a, uh, parents who are emotionally distanced from their children or those parents who only give attention, like, for when a child is sick. Yep. You know, they couldn't be bothered with kids, but as soon as the kid gets, like, a little cold or whatever, you're like, oh, let me take care of you. You know what I mean? That's oh, the only attention they get. All of a sudden, the kid starts getting sick a lot, too. <laughs> yeah. At so, that point. So, just get some love. I know. So, some other interesting information that I found is that those with, we'll call it MSP, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, uh, are not discouraged by the cost of medical treatments. Like, they have no, they don't care how much it costs, whatever. They don't worry about how they'll manage their hospital bills. Instead, they believe driving up a large hospital bill reinforces the perception that they are doing everything they can for their child. They think others will th- see them as an even better caretaker. Okay? <laughs> now... <laughs> Go ahead. You just totally described my sister to a fucking (laughs) team. Does she listen to this? I mean, if she does, I'm listening. No, dude, super hypochondriac. Super hypochondriac. Just got, like, you just, you just something clicked in me, like, holy shit. (laughs) Okay. Well, I got more, so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see. see We might have just diagnosed my fucking sister. Okay. So, (laughs) symptoms. God almighty. Uh, this is your brother. I, I got nothing to do with this. So. <laughs> if you're listening. Dude, we should go get our MDs. I know. <laughs> so symptoms that can help identify someone who has MSP can be hard to spot. There are certain personality traits and backgrounds that seem to be common. Many suffered uh, mental, physical, or sexual abuse growing up. Or they received love or attention only when they were sick, as we said. As adults, people with MSP are very interested in medicine, okay? They often work in a medical field. They can speak expertly about medical medical conditions. They are typically very cooperative and friendly with healthcare professionals. They also appear to be completely devoted to the well-being of their child. But to fake the symptoms of illness in their children, they may go to extreme measures. And these include... Oh, okay. yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I take that back. Okay. Right. Keep going. Yeah, you're in the clear, Melissa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in the clear. <laughs> All right. Uh, they go I see ahead. where this is going, though. I, I, yes. Yeah. Yes. So these uh, include giving the child certain medicines or substances that will make them throw up or, or have diarrhea. Uh, heating up thermometers so it appears that the child has a fever. Not giving a child enough to eat so it looks like they can't gain weight. Uh, adding blood to a child's urine or stool and making up lab results. In the child, symptoms of a caregiver with MSP include a history of being in and out of hospitals with unusual health symptoms. Many times, their symptoms do not match any single disease. Symptoms usually get worse when they are alone with their caregiver. Symptoms also disappear in the absence of the person. So, if anybody's out there, you know, who knows somebody with a kid is always sick... (laughs) Double check. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, I, this, this, uh, I mean, call it syndrome, whatever, uh, you know, however you want to call it. It, de- it definitely, I've, I've just, I read, I read an article recently about it too, where it's just crazy that parents would go to that far. Right. It's like almost an obsession with bringing your kid to the doctor. It's, it's weird. I know. It's, uh, I don't know. This is where we're at in the story. And 
we'll get to see why Mary Beth starts taking a turn for the worse with this diagnosis in the next chapter. Nineteen seventy one began with hope and promise. The Tinnings were the epitome of the mid century American family. A house in Schenectady, two children, Joe worked at the local General Electric plant, and Mary Beth was a stay at home mom. Things couldn't be going better for them when in early spring Mary Beth discovered she was pregnant with a third child. This was everything she had ever hoped for. As the year ticked along and Mary Beth's belly kept getting bigger, things were soon going to come to a screeching halt. In October of 1971, Mary Beth's father, Alton, had become sick. Mary Beth went to visit him in the hospital and the whirlwind of her childhood slapped her straight in the face. Even on his deathbed, Alton refused to show any appreciation and love for Mary Beth and would criticize her. Soon after, Alton succumbed to cardiac arrest at the age of 54. Distraught and overcome with grief, Mary Beth was about to feel something at her father's funeral that she had never felt in her entire life. Sympathy. Family and friends came out in support of Mary Beth, taking care of Barbara and Joseph, cooking dinner, cleaning her house. The feeling was awkward, but it sparked a flame from within her, a flame that was about to grow. On December 26, 1971, the Tinnings welcomed their third child, Jennifer. What should have been a happy moment turned out to be a mother's worst nightmare. Jennifer was sick. The doctors worked around the clock to try and save her, but on January 3, 1972, after just eight days on this earth, Jennifer passed away from meningitis. If you thought this was the worst a Tinning family would have to experience, you are mistaken. It is going to get much, much worse. For the second time, grief struck Mary Beth. But as with her father's funeral, Mary Beth was overcome by the sympathy of her friends and family. Seventeen days after the death of Jennifer, on January 20th, Mary Beth stormed through the emergency room doors holding Joseph in her arms. Just barely over two years old, the otherwise healthy boy was now laying lifeless on a hospital bed and was soon declared dead. The doctor attributed his death to cardiac arrest, even though no autopsy was performed. How horrible, the residents of Schenectady thought. People again came out in droves to pay their respects and to check in on Mary Beth. More people to help cook, more people to help clean, and more people to help care for Barbara, now an only child. This would go on for some time, but life must go on. People would stop coming by and life in Schenectady would slowly go back to normal. While everyone is getting back to their daily routine, Mary Beth was again at the hospital. This time, on March 1st, 1972, it was four and a half year old Barbara who needed medical attention. Mary Beth had explained that Barbara was experiencing convulsions and was unresponsive. The hospital staff worked feverishly on Barbara and were able to resuscitate her. Unable to find out what was exactly wrong with her, they ruled that Barbara had experienced a seizure and sent her back home under the supervision of her mother. That decision would prove to be fatal as the next day, March 2nd, Barbara was dead. Three children, two of which never having any health issues, were now deceased in three months' time. According to family and friends, Mary Beth became withdrawn 
and would have emotional outbursts accusing them of not being more sympathetic toward her regarding the loss of her children. Joe felt it was time for a change of scenery as they tried to piece their life back together. So he sold their house and bought another one within town. Hopefully, he thought, they would be able to rebuild their family. So now we have uh, Mary Beth's father and three of her children dead. Jesus Christ. You know, you would think possibly this would raise some eyebrows, but no, it doesn't. No autopsy performed on a child kind Mm. of... I th- I'm pretty sure I now there's laws to that where like if a kid under five dies, regardless if you want, like, yeah. I think maybe if I've heard that, yeah. Like there's I, I I'm not you know I'm talking shit. I have no idea what the fuck I do. I don't know anything, but I'm pretty sure there's something there like where yeah. they have to figure out what it was. That's crazy because that's not like that's cardiac arrest doesn't just happen to a kid. You got to figure out what the hell happened. Right. The deaths of Joseph and Barbara had occurred in Mary Beth's care, and there were no questions to why these two children. We're dead with no history of pre-existing medical conditions. Now, Barbara was the oldest of the three. She's already far past typical SIDS, you know, range. Nine months, right? Around nine months. So you're now starting to see how a lack of an emotional connection in her younger years in the sudden outpouring of support she's receiving is starting to twist her mind a little bit. She loves it. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the death of Jennifer is what sent her off the deep end? Or do you think her dad's death was had, like, the most influence on the syndrome? Uh, I think, like, the first taste of it was with her father. Because, you know, as we discussed, he was emotionally distant from her. And uh, Mary Beth craved nothing more than her, her father's love. So, and even on her, on, his, on her father's deathbed, he refused to tell her that he loved her. You know, and that's all she, you know, she said, I love you, Dad. And he was like, get the fuck away from me, basically. His his death also, now she knows that she'll never have that. Right. There'll never be a moment where Mm -hmm. she can get that. Right. So when her father died, you know, she was fucking devastated, you know, because, you know, she, she, like you said, she'll never have that, I guess, closure, I guess. But then all these people started pouring in and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you fought, you know. So she was like, wow. Like, this is kind of like a, a replacement yep. of this, you know, emotional connection I needed. You know, and then uh, Jennifer passed away, and she got that again. You know, like, all these people are coming in, like, oh, my, you know, bringing food yeah. and stopping in and paying a, you know. Full freezer full of fucking yeah, food. you know, people coming in, you know, if anything you need, they're, they're cleaning her house. You know, they're taking care of Joseph and, and Barbara, you know, making sure everything was squared away. And, you know, she's now she's like, yeah, I can get the, used to this. The, yeah. sad, the sad part about that, though, because yeah. I've seen it firsthand, mm-hmm. is it's great for the week after somebody passes because everybody yeah. wants to help. Every all family comes over and then yeah. it goes away real fast. Life, life, life doesn't stop. Yep. And then it's know? and then it's a very dark, empty house. Yeah. At that point. You know, yep. you don't really grieve after the first week, like right. the first week until right. until all your family starts showing up. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it in person. So yeah. I, I get. And, you know, you bring up a good point because, I mean, this could actually be referred to, you know, we can reference this to like a drug. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. You know, you get you hit the drug, whatever, and you get this euphoric feeling. You're like, oh, wow. You know, this is great. You know, I'm good. And, blah, blah, blah. and, also, and then you start coming down. Boom. And then it hits you. Then you're like, fuck, I need yep. another fucking hit. You know what I mean? Yep. So I, I can see how that can translate to this. Yeah, yeah definitely. 100%. Yep. So just when you thought that this couldn't get any worse. 
You got to hit us again, Dave. Strap in, because this is, this is going to get a little bit more wild in uh, Chapter 3. Now settled into their new home, Mary Beth and Joe reached out to the Department of Social Services, expressing their interest in becoming foster parents. In the fall of 1972, the Tinnings welcomed a foster child named Robert. He stayed with them until January of 73, and then they brought in another foster named Linda. Linda was sent back to social services in early spring once Mary Beth discovered she was pregnant with their fourth child. On November 21, 1973, Timothy Tinning was born. He was a healthy boy, that is up until December 20th, when Mary Beth brought him to the hospital dead. Puzzled and unable to determine a cause of death, it was ruled that Timothy died from sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. While much of the family were absolutely devastated by the loss of the Tinning's fourth child, whispers of wrongdoing began to creep into conversations. Questions of how seemingly normal, healthy children would suddenly turn up dead, and if this was truly related to genetics, why would Mary Beth keep having children? Things weren't going so well for Joe either. Saddened by the mounting loss of his children, and accompanied by Mary Beth's lack of fiscal responsibility, well-mannered and shy Joe began to argue with Mary Beth. The family was on the brink of falling apart. In the spring of 1974, Joe was admitted to the hospital, and after a series of tests, it was discovered that Joe was suffering from a near-fatal overdose of barbiturates. How any of these events leading up to this moment didn't raise any red flags is beyond me. But through it all, Joe and Mary Beth decided to work it out but under one condition. Joe requests that Mary Beth seek inpatient psychiatric help. She agreed, but unbeknownst to Joe, she escaped from the hospital when telling that the doctor said that she was fine. The list of strange occurrences keep piling up for the Tinnings. To those in the outside world, it would appear that Mary Beth and Joe have the worst of luck, but for those closer to the family, this all started to seem like an inside job. Not long after Mary Beth had returned to Joe from the hospital, the Tinning household was ransacked, and life continued to spiral out of control for Joe and Mary Beth. Nathan, their fifth child, is born and dies barely six months later in 1975 from what is believed to be SIDS. In 1978, the Tinnings adopt a son, Michael, and they also give birth to their sixth biological child, a girl named Mary Frances. At three months old, Mary Frances is brought to the hospital unconscious, but is revived. A month later, she returns to the hospital in full cardiac arrest and dies a few days later from irreversible brain damage. Their seventh child, Jonathan, was born in November of 1979. And you guessed it. Three months later, he is in the hospital on life support and passes away a month later. Now, whether all of these deaths can be attributed to SIDS, cardiac arrest, some type of rare undetermined genetic disorder, or by the hands of their own mother, no one at the time could truly know. But the horror of what was really going on within the Tinning household would soon come to light. So to the outside world appears that since Mary Beth's children have passed, it would be a good idea to foster other children. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe. <laughs> so, Dude, 
What? Yeah. yeah. It, like, no red flags, huh? Yeah. No red Oh, it's just genetics. Yeah. What? Yeah. Uh, luckily, nothing happened to them. But once she began having children again, none of them could seem to live past five years old. Red flags should have been flying high. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially after Joe went into the hospital for a possible overdose of barbiturates. He had to have known at that point that he was being poisoned. Or drugged or whatever. Like what? Yeah. He had to have known. And then and then he comes back and says, all right, I'll, I'll stay with you, but you got to go get fucking help. Yeah. Like, dude, come on, Joe. You now, like, those are your children, dude. You had to have, he had to have known something was up. I can't point. wait to get to the end of the story. Uh, oh, I can't wait. So, uh, close family and friends began to quietly speculate that their misfortunes with having children weren't so random. Could you imagine if you had an aunt? And all of a sudden, all her babies just kept dying. Yeah. Like, you know damn well your your mom at that point would be like, well, we're not going over Aunt Mary Beth's house anymore. This fucking yeah, exactly. bitch is crazy. Yeah. There's no yeah. way. The fucking house is cursed. <laughs> the house. Yeah. No. Anybody with a, half a brain would have been like, No, no, I know, yeah. This yeah. girl's killing her kids. Yep. <laughs> so Timothy, Nathan, Mary Francis, and Jonathan have now died for unknown reasons. And they have now adopted a two-and-a-half-year-old boy named Michael. Surely, he will evade the curse of the tinning children, as he is not their biological child, right? Yes. Well, if this podcast was a Hallmark special, there would be a happy ending. But, it's not. We're far from Hallmark. (laughs) We're criminal AF, okay? We rarely talk about happy endings. So, it's going to be a wild ride, folks. Chapter 4. In February of 1981, two-and-a-half-year-old Michael falls down the stairs and is brought to the hospital by Mary Beth. Doctors observe him for signs of a concussion and other injuries resulting from the fall. He is cleared and sent back home. On March 2nd, Michael returns to the hospital. Dead. How much more tragedy can follow this family? The next few years bring the Tinnings to the brink of financial ruin. They lose their house, move in with Joe's parents for a while, and they purchase a trailer as their next home. Mary Beth bounces from job to job during this time and finally finds steady work volunteering with an ambulance company. In spring of 1982, their trailer catches fire and everything is destroyed. In the summer of 1984, Mary Beth is asked not to return to the ambulance company because there are medical items discovered stolen and fingers pointed to Mary Beth. With all eyes directed at Mary Beth, family, friends, the hospital, child services, and the police, she becomes pregnant with her eighth child. On August 22, 1985, Tammy Lynn Tinning was welcomed into this world. This time, Mary Beth is required to bring Tammy Lynn for regular checkups and be kept under the watchful eye of her doctors and child services. But even they couldn't stop what was about to happen. Tammy Lynn, just two days shy of being four months old, dies on December 20th, 1985. Enough was enough. Mary Beth was immediately questioned by child services and the Schenectady police. A few days later, Mary Beth herself contacts Child Services because she is concerned about the impressions she left in their interview. In late winter of 1986, both Joe and Mary Beth were brought in for further questioning. On February 4, 1986, 
Mary Beth confesses to smothering Tammy Lynn. But that's not all. She also confessed to killing Timothy and Nathan, but retracted her statement saying she was coerced. Remember her husband Joe's overdose? She later admitted that she took barbiturates from her friend and put them in his grape juice to help him with the stress and anxiety he was experiencing, nearly killing him. Accidental? Maybe. Attempted murder? Probably. Also the robbery of their home and the fire that destroyed their trailer, both caused by Mary Beth. She was arrested and charged with the murder of Tammy Lynn. Police contacted forensic pathologist Michael Biden to help with their case. They asked him if it was normal for children who die from SIDS to have a blue complexion to their skin. Dr. Biden explained that SIDS babies appear to be as if they are sleeping, with no distinguishable markings or colorization. If the babies appear to be blue, the cause of death is asphyxiation. All of the Tenning's children, including adopted son Michael, were reported to have a blue complexion. The only exception was Jennifer. Mary Beth was eventually diagnosed with Munchausen by proxy, a mental disorder in which a caregiver makes up or causes an illness, injury, or death of a person in their care for the sole purpose of seeking attention and sympathy. Mary Beth's young life of being ignored, discarded, and shunned by her family took a turn after the death of her father and daughter. She received enormous support and in turn triggered her obsession for this attention at the expense of her very own children. Mary Beth was sentenced to 20 years of life in 1986. Yep, you guessed it. Michael dies. For sure, Mary Beth would be brought in for questioning over the death of their adopted child. Yeah, especially, you would think, especially after falling down the stairs, and then a month later he comes back dead, after all the things that happened previously, like... Yeah. And then they allow her to have a, another ch- child, like Child Protective Services, like, no no one's, no, there's no red flags through this. Yep. Yeah. And this is 1981. This isn't back in the 70s when this started. Right. You know, as we talked about before, you know, someone who has MSP, you know, they try to incorporate themselves into the medical field, or at least consume themselves with learning medical technology. And, you know, Mary Beth, we learn, gets a job as, as with the ambulance company dealing with medical situations emergencies yeah and you know of course while she's there you know let me let me steal some you know medical supplies and whatnot yeah so nothing happens after michael and finally after the birth and subsequent death of tammy lynn they put the screws to mary beth (laughs) a little too late a little too late yeah so they separate mary beth and joe and i'm sorry but if this was my wife, my children. I'm not even talking about like now, yeah. but like four babies ago. Yeah. I would probably be like, yo, what the That's fuck a, is say, going I'm on? Say, I'm saying like when they pull me in, when they separate us, yeah. I'm in there like, help me. Yeah. Help me, please. Yes. I don't know yeah. what the hell is going on. Yeah. And, 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 and she sick. tries and to kill him. He know, and yeah. And yeah. he knows that she's sick. He He's yeah. asked her to get help. Right. And the crazy part is we, we associated this with a drug before, correct? Right. There's no way at this point, right? Eight child, eight children in. It's not the same. There's no who's showing up to these funerals. 
Right. Oh my my baby my eighth child died at this point. Yeah. Everybody's probably like, dude, this this is crazy. Right. You're not getting the same reaction as your first and second. Or somebody child. somebody would like grab her and shake her and stop fucking having kids. <laughs> yes, or something. Like <laughs> she, she's not at that po- at this point she's not getting the dopamine that she was getting before from right. these experiences. Yeah. It's probably like everybody nobody's treating this like they're everybody knows she's crazy and this and that. Yeah. So like the fact that it's seven, six, seven, eight. She has to be doing it just to do it. At that point. Right. I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Because I mean, a, a crackhead, a crackhead will, they they lose their their hit and their high to the point where they're not getting it the same either, and they still yeah. keep going. So yep. it's yeah. crazy. So you know, like I was saying, if if I was married to her, you know, four children, I'd be like, all right, for one, either you're fucking crazy and you're killing these kids, or I'm not having more kids with you. You know, he didn't care. I'm, I'm not going to do this, right? Get your child in. Especially after you know Michael dies, he's an adopted kid. He's not biological. So where where does all this Sid stuff come? To, you know, yeah. or, or genetic, whatever. So they they pull him into another room. Okay. Yep. So you know, like we said, you know, what are you going to say? Like, fuck, help me. You know, this bitch is crazy. You know, fuck. You know, she's killing all my kids. Everything. Nope. Joe is steadfast. He's like, my wife is innocent. <laughs> Jesus. You know. There's no way he believes that. The okay, yeah. There's no way he believes that. No, I, no, I can't. No. I can't. Uh, I can't see it. Maybe, yeah, maybe, but I don't. I don't know how. So, speaking of Sids too. Yeah. Uh, isn't it crazy that in 2022 that we still don't know what causes it? We're no just clue. we're yeah. just left up in the air. All, all these these these. I feel bad for every parent that has to ever has gone through that mm. to the point where they're like, hey, sorry. It, that's it. Just that's what that's how it goes. That's, just that's, that's what happens. It's so horrible. Yeah. How do we just not know? There's no closure whatsoever to how your child died. And I, I've heard some people say, you know, oh, it's they do suffocate. That's why you don't put pillows in the crib. But like, like you said in the in the story, if a baby asphyxiation, they turn blue. Right. Sid's babies don't turn blue. So yeah. how are they smothered in blankets and all that stuff? It, it's 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 just it's crazy. It's crazy to me. Yep. Do you know how savage you have to be to smother your own children? I can't even, like, I don't know. No. You, like, li- li- listen, my oldest son, I'm going to tell you a little story. My oldest son, when he was born, he was the perfect child. Like, baby. Never cried. Yep. Was always happy. You know, I was like, wow, this parenting shit it's, it's is easy. fucking easy. I you know, know exactly where you're going. I don't this. know what everybody's bitching about, you know. Yeah. And then my second son was was born. Fucking love him to death. I love both my sons. Would do anything. I would die for my children. However, my second son was the spawn of fucking Satan. Same. Same. The exact same thing on my side. Awful. Non-stop fucking crying. You know, you know, blah, blah, all this stuff. And, you know, you hear of, like, parents, like, you know, going off the fucking deep end. You know, they're like, they just can't take it anymore. You know, like, never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind. I I always talk to like whenever I, I I talk to people like about parenting and stuff like that. I think all parents out there, everybody who's listening, can understand. Like, obviously, smothering your child on this is different. But mm. at, when you hear stories about you know parents getting worked up and, and shaking baby shaking syndrome, bit, yeah, you I think every parent understands how that happens. I think they understand where that goes, how that happens. But not everybody. Everybody, like most people, understand. (laughs) Hey, if I get that worked up, we're gonna walk out of the room. We're gonna do whatever. Like, like, but you you can see how it happens. You can see how people get there. This is a total another like situation. And then that, yeah. And and to go back on that, you know, it's it's one of the things because we actually 
uh, I think he was probably like two or three months old, whatever. We brought him, you know, went, went for his checkup. And we were just like, you know, he's just like cries all the time, you know. And, and, he, and the doctor actually said, which makes sense, he said, no baby has ever died from crying. Yep. You know let, I mean? let him cry. Let him cry. Yep. You know? They, I mean, obviously, check the, you know, make sure his basic needs are met, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's not lying in a <laughs> shitty diaper, you know, whatever. Yeah, of course. You know, but that actually helped a lot because, you know, it, it was like we had no sleep. You know, it was just like constant. And finally, you know, just, all right, let him, let him cry, you know, cry it out. There's a saying that, like, you know, the first, you having the first one as an angel yeah. lulls you into thinking oh i got this i can have another one it's yeah. like an evolutionary trait right. where like yeah. the first one's easy so then you just keep populating the world and then you realize the yeah. second one is it's yeah. the same thing happened to me daughter was <clears throat> perfect baby yeah. this is easy yeah my son forget about it yeah so my 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 youngest son was so bad i can't say so bad <laughs> but hey you weren't that bad i buddy. love you ethan you're great <laughs> But no, I mean he's grown up to be a remarkable young man. You know, he's he's went to college. You know, he's, he's a great kid. Both of my kids are wonderful, surprisingly, because I'm a <laughs> fucking I'm a wreck. But my my youngest son wasn't even a year old yet when I decided to have a vasectomy. I was like, I am done. done. I am not having any more kids. I am done. Yep. Makes you kind of wonder, like, what my other kids would have been like. You know, but. You would have you if you would have had that girl. Yeah, <laughs> if I would have had that. You know, little daddy's girl. No, she probably would have been a demon oh, spawn yeah, too. Just like <laughs> I'd probably be dead by now from all this fucking stress. Uh, I don't know if I could. Uh, you know, Dad, meet my new boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. In jail. Yeah, that's where I'd be. So you know, they put the screws to Mary Beth. They're like, all right, listen here. You know, this has gone on long enough. You know, the, so then you know she finally admits to, yes, I smothered Timmy Lynn. I killed her. And she admitted to uh, killing two of her other children, but quickly recanted, saying that she yep. was forced to, to make that statement. So she goes to, goes to trial, and she's only charged with Tammy Lynn's death, you know, none of the others. And uh, so, you know, she murdered eight of her nine children. She was only sentenced to 20 years in prison, 20 years to life. <laughs> what? So, yeah. Did she have the possibility of parole? <clears throat> yeah, after 20 years. When she first became eligible for parole, she was denied and had been, you know, for the subsequent years, you know, afterwards. However, in a macabre twist to this story, if it can get any weirder, on August 21st, 2018, Mary Beth was granted parole and released from prison. So where do you go? You know, after spending more than 30 years in prison for killing your eight children, faking the robbery of your house, setting fire to your house, and attempting to kill your husband, where would you go? Who's going to be stuck around to take care of you after all of this? Yeah. 30 years has passed. Of course, she goes back to Joe, who has stood by her during all these years, swearing her innocence. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I was like, both of us, I could just see you just, as you're talking, I'm just like, <laughs> what a bitch. Oh, my God. He was always, like, very timid, very laid back, didn't have a lot of friends, didn't really, you know, he was, like, kind of like an antisocial, you know, really didn't. Introverted. Introverted, yeah, yeah, yeah. introverted, that's what I'm talking about. And, like, when, when he first got together with Mary Beth, 
Like to be perfectly honest, that's probably like the first and only woman, you know, that would give him a chance. You know what I mean? So through all of this, I don't know. He probably yeah, he probably stayed. He probably was by himself the entire time that she was in prison. Oh yeah, I, well, a question. And then, yeah, that's so crazy. It's like crazy. Like right? c- convicted, convicted of killing your own children. Yeah, and you're just. Hey, you need you need money for the books? Yeah. Do you have any honey buns? You got, you got your honey buns? How about some new sour soup? <laughs> I got these. They got beautiful Crocs in the commissary. Yeah, you run low on ramen. Oh my god, Joe, yeah. you're just as bad as she is. Yeah, you're an enabler, Joe. Speak up, stand up for yourself and your children. You fuck. All right, that'll do it for Mary Beth Tinning, the Munchausen murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. If you liked what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review because we are the number one true crime podcast on the planet. (laughs) And there you go. No, don't listen. Look, don't look at charts. Nope. Don't look at anything. Nope. All right? We're telling you this. Don't do it. And it's the law. All right? (laughs) What what we say goes. (laughs) Tell all your friends, too. Hey. They like true crime? Go listen to the number one true crime podcast. Oh, yeah. Criminal AF. So to become one of our criminals on Patreon, visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF. There are five tiers, and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. Links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. Also, guys, if you want the video version of this podcast, they're all up on YouTube. Go check them out. Me and Dave are uh, very animated. Yes. If you want to see us that way. And we may also do a little criminal AF OnlyFans. No. <laughs> we just sit here naked and talk yeah. about like, serial killers. Just let, every, let everything hang out. Be like, hey, did you, did you hear about that one guy? <laughs> did you hear about the yeah. masturbating yeah. pastor in the park? Don't mind me. I just got out of the pool. Yeah. <laughs> it's cold in here. It's cold. It's a breeze. Wow. Chilly. Oh, man. So that'll do it for this episode of Colonel AF. Signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel and take care until next time. See See ya. ya.